Well, here we are. Last week, we made it all the way through. Um, this passage, I think to me, is a fitting end to the book of Ephesians. Obviously, Paul knew what he was doing when he was writing the letter because he closes it out with this powerful exhortation, this powerful um, last message to them, these final words, what he really wants them to remember about all that he has said before. He closes it out with this image of spiritual warfare and just this encouragement to be who the Lord has called them to be. And it's a great um, reminder to us as well, because in light of all that we have learned this summer about who God is, about his limitless stores of power and mercy and love and grace, about all the spiritual blessings he has given us, our salvation and redemption, faith, adoption into his family, and all that he has called us to be, a church that is unified through the blood of Christ, um, people who are his representatives in the world, who walk in light, who imitate him, and who show the world what his ways are like, um, then this is just a powerful closing message that kind of wraps it all up into one to say all these things we've been talking about, this is why it matters. Because we are in a battle, and it's a real battle. The spiritual battle that we face every day, um, we don't necessarily talk about it very much in the church, I don't think. Like, we may make passing references to Satan, or, you know, we just, we spend so much more time talking about God and His mercy and His love and His goodness and His kindness and Jesus, and He died for us on the cross, and He saved us from our sin, and all of those things are good things, and we should talk about those things, but we should not forget that the enemy is real. We can't always see him, but that doesn't mean that he's not there. And so the big reminder to us is to remember that the battle that we face is fierce and the enemy is hostile and he's a tricky little devil who sneaks in and attacks when you're least expecting it. And he is sneaky and it just gets you in the most unexpected places and he has not given up the fight. Just because Jesus has won the war does not mean that Satan has given up on us. And the great lie that we as Christians fall for sometimes is that we do not fully believe that we have victory over evil. We are not claiming the victory that Jesus has already brought about. We live in defeat sometimes. We believe the lies that Satan hurls at us. And so it's important for us, this message is important for us to claim, to be strong in the Lord, to take courage, to put on the armor of God, and to remember who we are and whose we are so that we can face these battles and fight them victoriously because they're out there. Um, the forces of evil are real. And, and each of us face them in different ways throughout our life. And so, above all else, Paul calls the people of Ephesus to stand firm. And the way that he does it, um, he says it over and over and over again in this passage. So let's read it together, and then we'll talk about it in more detail. In chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts." Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So the battle that we are facing is fierce. But Paul gives the Ephesians four imperatives to, to keep in mind as they are fighting the battle. Four things that they must do to be able to stand firm in the day that they face evil. The first one is to be strong in the Lord. Okay? And when it says that in verse 10, it says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It's referring to the power of God. And we've already seen in Ephesians in chapter 1, that power was the resurrecting power of God that raised Christ from the dead. And it seated Him in the heavenly places. It is the power that is available to us in surpassing greatness. To everyone who believes. And in Ephesians 3, that same power, Paul prayed that we would be strengthened with that power in our inner beings. And here in chapter 6, it's the power that sustains us in our fight against evil. The power of God is necessary to fight evil. The implication here is that if you are not filled with the power of God, you will not be able to stand against evil. So without God filling us, without God enabling us, then we are powerless to defeat the enemy at our gates. So we must have God's power filling us in inwardly so that we can face the enemy outwardly. Spurgeon, do any of you know Charles Spurgeon, old preacher? Um, he, in his commentary on Ephesians, says, whether you are called upon to work or to wait or to watch or to suffer, you have need to be strong. If you are not yourself strong, the very armor that you wear will be a burden to you. So if we are not empowered by the Spirit of God, we will not be able to hold up the weight of the armor that God has provided for us. It is the empowering and enabling of the Spirit that allows us to have faith that allows us to embrace truth, that allows us to um, be made righteous. So all of those gifts of the Spirit with which we fight off evil stem directly from God and His power. And the good thing that we have, that we know, the hope that we cling to in all of this is that Jesus has already conquered these forces of evil that we're facing. 
um, in Ephesians 1.21, if we flip back there, it tells us that the power raised Jesus from the dead, it seated him in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. So Jesus is already seated at the, in the heavenly places above what? All rule and authority and power and dominion. So those four things. And then we look in chapter 6, verse 10, and it says, for 12, I'm sorry, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers, and the spiritual forces of evil. Okay? And those are parallel to the four things that Jesus has already been raised above and is already, they are already below Christ. So he has already had victory over, over these things. He has already um, slayed them in a sense. But just because the war has been won doesn't mean that the battle is not still raging on. Okay? It, is, it still rages. And Jesus is our champion in a sense, just like David went out in front of the armies of Israel and he stepped out and he fought Goliath, right? But there was still a whole host of army behind Goliath that the army of Israel then chased away. Does that make sense? So Jesus has been our champion. He has fought the battle, but there are still skirmishes going on the edges and on the fringes that we are responsible for standing up for. And <clears throat> Satan knows that he has lost. He knows that he does not have a chance. It's like, have you ever watched a basketball game where there was like just such a, the score was like 102 to 34 in the first two minutes of the game. And like there is no chance that the team with 34 points is ever going to come back and win. They have lost. It is over. But what do they do? They keep on playing until the end of the game because there's not a run rule in basketball. It's not baseball. You can't just stop just because you're losing sorely. No, it keeps on going until that final buzzer sounds. And right now that's where we are. We are waiting for that final buzzer to sound. We're caught up in the midst of that battle that is still raging on, and we are waiting for our champion to come back and end it once and for all. But in the meantime... We have to be strong enough to stand firm. And the thing that is a great comfort to me is that God has already given us everything that we need to do it. He has provided us with all that we need to face the battle. Um, and specifically, the things that he has given us are named here in the pieces of armor that we're told to put on. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, um, the gospel of peace as shoes for your feet, <coughs> excuse me, and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. And then there's also the sword of the spirit, but we will talk about that kind of separately on its own. And so all of these things, these gifts of the spirit, truth and righteousness and salvation, um, the gospel, faith, all of those things are what protect us from the attacks of Satan. Because think about it. Without truth, if you do not embrace the truth of the word, if you um, refuse to claim it, then you are susceptible to any of the lies that Satan whispers, the lies that he tells the world. 
But when you claim truth, you're saying no to those things. You're saying no to what the world tells you and yes to what God says instead. You're choosing to believe that God's word is the only word that matters and that what he says is the most important thing. And so when you have truth on your side and you begin to know it and you understand it, once you have seen the truth, then you recognize lies for what they are. You cannot be fooled by them anymore. You see through them because you know what's really going on. And what's really going on is that God's word is the only word that can be trusted. And so truth kind of holds all these other things together. Once we encounter truth, it changes us and it allows us to have faith. It allows us to be made righteous, okay? Which is the second piece of armor that he talks about. He tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, which what does a breastplate do? It covers your chest, your heart. It protects your most important internal organs, right? Okay. What does sin do to a heart? It hardens it. Um, it makes it dirty, right? When we're wracked with sin, um, then a heart is dark and cold and black. But what does the Bible tell us happens to those who believe? When we place our trust in Jesus, what happens to that heart? It's made new. It's made white as snow. Righteousness, um, when we embrace truth and we turn to God, He covers over our sinfulness and puts His righteousness in its place. So it's like um, the father who runs out to meet the prodigal son and he puts that rich robe over him and he covers up that filth. And so he is not dressed in rags anymore. He's dressed in riches. And that's what the Lord does for us. He puts the riches of Christ's righteousness on us and that his righteousness is what protects us from Satan's attacks because on our own, we know that we are never going to merit salvation. No matter how hard we try to follow the rules or how hard we try to live up to the commandments, we cannot. We can't live up to it on our own. But Jesus can and Jesus did. And 2 Corinthians said that God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin. He died on the cross for our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He gave us his righteousness in our, in instead of our own. And so because his righteousness is credited to our accounts, then, then our hearts are protected from the effects of sin because Jesus' righteousness is in our place, is in its place. The third piece of armor that he says <coughs> that we should take up is... With your feet fitted, okay, when I was in college, I, this is a side note, but I cannot read this in the ESV version without thinking, I just I have it memorized in NIV and it just sounds wrong to me. So I, I worked at a summer camp and I was a cook um, for two months during the summer and the kids had to come in and then like they would recite their Bible verses during the meals. Like that's how they learned it, which is fine for the kids who were there for just one week. That's a great way for them to learn it. But I worked there for two months, y'all. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> and this was the passage <laughs> that they memorized. And so in my head, I think, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Like that's what I hear when I read this. And so anyway, um, in the ESV, <laughs> it says... 
um, in verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What does that mean? That's kind of a strange kind of turn of phrase. I think that what it's getting at is that with the gospel, our footing is steady. It gives us um, a secure footing so that when we, are, we have our feet firmly laced up in the gospel, um, then we don't have to worry about losing traction on the battlefield because the gospel um, holds us steady. You got to be, right, you got, yeah, so you can, you get your fleet of foot kind of thing. Um, so there's a sense of sure footing, but there's also the sense of they're light, it makes you light and quick and easy to move. You're not wearing hiking boots here and getting hung up on it. No, if you've ever seen any of those pictures of these Roman soldiers, they had on sandals, right? And so um, that verse that you read, looking back at Isaiah how beautiful on the feet on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, right? And so what is the gospel but the good news of Christ? So there's that sense that it gives us secure footing, but there's also the sense that it enables us when our feet are planted in the gospel, we are enabled to go and to share the gospel so that our feet are beautiful because we are bringing the good news of salvation to the rest of the world. And the news that we are carrying is that those who have are far off have been brought near, that there is therefore now no more enmity between God and man, that Jesus has wrought peace between all of us. And that's the message um, that we preach as well when we are sharing the gospel with others. The fourth thing that he asks us to put on is, or to take up is the shield of faith. And our faith is what protects us from the worst things that the enemy can throw at us. According to the Bible, and I believe it, the worst enemy that we'll ever face is what? Death. And so what does faith, our faith in Christ promise us? Life. It promises life. And so that's why in 2 Corinthians, Paul can say when he's talking about Jesus and his resurrection and how it applies to us as well, how we're all looking forward to life, he can say, hey, death, where's your victory? Hey, death, where's your sting? Death can't touch us because Christ is victorious over it. He has already conquered it. And when we have faith, we may face death in our earthly bodies, but by faith we know that it's not the end of the story. So Satan can throw all the fiery darts that he wants at us. He can try to burn us with the flames of hell, but they can't touch us because our, flame, our, our faith protects us from it. And as long as we have faith, then then it will never even come near us um, because faith acts as a bubble protecting us from the worst that Satan can throw at us. And then the last thing that he says um, to put on then is the helmet of salvation. So when we believe, we, we place our faith in Christ, we are saved. And so it is that salvation rests on our heads like a helmet because it comes from belief at least in this imagery that he's giving it makes sense that he would choose salvation as a helmet for the head and also because it is kind of an echo of those passages in Isaiah that you read for your homework um, when 
it protects us from any and every attack because it's the promise to which we cling, the hope on which our faith rests. And so faith is very much a matter of the heart, but it's also a matter of the head, of hearing the truth and acknowledging the truth and embracing it and believing it, and it makes its way down to our heart. And like we have said throughout this whole thing, right thinking leads to right desires, which leads to right actions. And so when our thinking is in line um, with Christ and we are, we are thinking out of a heart of faith, <laughs> you're fine, you're fine, you go ahead. Um, when we are doing those things, then it protects us because we know that we are looking forward to something better. We know that we have been saved, that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so um, the really neat thing about all of this, which you may have noticed in your homework when you looked at those passages in Isaiah, did y'all look them up? Raise your, I mean, it's okay if you did, and I'll, I'll read them if we, I need, I probably need to read them. Okay, I've got to, let's see, Isaiah 11, four through five. keep flipping past Isaiah. Okay. So Isaiah 11 verses 4 through 5. These ver- all of these verses talk about a Messiah who is coming and he is fighting on behalf of his people. Okay. So in verse 4 it says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So this is a little different because in our passage it's talking about truth being our belt, right? But one that we haven't talked about yet is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The word of the of the Lord. And so this coming Messiah is going to use his words, the rod of his mouth will strike the earth and kill the wicked. Okay, so it is by his word that these things are going to happen. Um, the next verse we're going to look at is Isaiah 59:17, which says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as his cloak. Okay. So this Messiah, when he came and he fought the battle and he fought on behalf of his people, he decked himself out in this armor, okay? One of, um, I once heard it taught by one of my professors and I have never forgotten it. It seemed like such a fitting analogy to me, is that when he talks about the armor of God, it is literally God's armor that we are putting on. So it's like... um, the hotshot football player who's a senior and he runs, he goes off to college, he graduates, he moves on to bigger and better things, but he leaves his gear hanging in the locker room. And when the next person steps up to put it on, it still stinks of his sweat and it's nasty and it's gross, but it was his and it will protect the next person who wears it just as it protected him. And so just as Jesus has come and he has fought and he has guarded himself with this armor he has left those same things for us to put on to protect us in the battle against satan it is his armor that we wear and we know that he was victorious we know that it protected him we have seen what he did with these things and so that ought to give us 
hope and sustenance um, as we face the battles of life because we know that these tools are all that we need to face down the enemies that are before us. Okay, so that's the first thing is to be strong in the Lord. The second thing that we have to do is to train ourselves to use the sword of the Spirit. Which when he tells them to put on the armor of God, all of the pieces that we have talked about so far, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes fit with the readiness for the gospel of peace, all of those things are defensive, right? They protect you. But none of them are weapons to use. The only weapon that we are given is the sword of the Spirit. Now, we would not hand someone a loaded gun who has never shot before and expect them to go and hit the middle of the target. Would you? I mean, it would be a miracle if they did. Pure luck, right? What does it require to become a good shot? Lots and lots of practice. Now, I don't know because I've never really seen a real sword fight. I've never really known a real swordsman. So all of my information is coming from novels and books and movies. So bear with me on this. But I'm pretty sure that if you want to be good at wielding a sword, you have to practice using it. And all the books I read, they have like practice yards, you know, like where they're defending the castle or whatever. You know, all the king's men have practice yards where they train daily for hours like each morning in the use of the sword it takes a while to learn how to use it properly but if you don't know how to use it properly then you may as well not even be holding one because someone else will just cut you down it doesn't do you any good if you don't know how to use it and the same thing is true when it comes to the sword of the spirit the word of god the reason that so many of us aren't experiencing victory in our fight against evil is because we don't know the Word of God and we are not claiming it as truth over our lives. We have a general idea of what the Bible might say about some things, but we don't know it well enough to fight back with it. And that's a shame. Because it's our only offensive weapon. It's the only thing we have to make Satan back down. So he can keep coming at you from every side. And like you may huddle behind your shield of faith. And your breastplate of righteousness may keep you from like taking one in the heart. But if you want to get him to back off, you have to throw the word of God back at him. But that only comes through regular Bible study Um, regular meditation on the word, scripture memorization, tucking it into your heart, knowing it like you know the words of your own mama. I mean, how many, okay, name something that your mother always told you. What's one of your mama's truths? Because I said so. (laughs) That is definitely one. I've got eyes in the back of my head, you know. What else? Okay, what about some wisdom that mama's imparted? Is there any? Oh, there you go. I haven't heard that one, but hey, that's one of your mamas. Anybody else have anything? What? <laughs> yes. I said, I don't know. I just remember mom always telling me, you never pay for anything else. And so my husband gives me a hard time about it now. 
he don't he because he remembers me telling him my mama said you never pay for your own. So, so the man was always supposed to pay for it. That's right. See? And the reason we remember those things is that our mamas have drilled them into us from childhood on. And it should be the same way with the Word of God. We should know it like the back of our hand. We shouldn't have to stop and think about what the Bible says about this. We should know it. But the only way that we're going to know it is if we study it. So... How do you fight back then? Um, like if, if, if the enemy comes at you and he tells you that your sins are too much, that you have been too bad, that there's no way that God can ever forgive you for it, how do you fight back against that if you don't know the Word? But if you know the Word, then you can send him to Isaiah 1, chapter 18, verse 18, where the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. Though they are crimson, they shall be like wool. And so when Satan tells us that you're all alone, that no one loves you, that there's no one like you, that no one wants to be with you, um, that you're not cool enough to have friends or whatever lies he throws at you, you can answer back, no, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. When <clears throat> Satan tells us that um, you aren't good enough for God's love, that you could never, <laughs> he would never love someone like you, you can answer back, no, God loved us while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. He didn't die for the righteous. He died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Or when he tells you that you're too weak, that there's no way you could do that, that God couldn't be calling you to do that because you're too weak for that, then you can say no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is what? Made perfect in weakness. And when Satan tells us that you can't, you can answer back, I can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The word is a weapon that's at our disposal. It's the weapon that Jesus used against Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan came at him three times and hurled three kind of temptations at Jesus. And every single time, Jesus answered with the word of God. And so if it was effective enough and good enough for Jesus to use in the fight against Satan, then I don't know why we do not train ourselves in using it more. The word of God, Hebrews says, Hebrews 4.12 says, is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It can divide even the bone from the marrow. It is the sharpest weapon that we will ever wield. And it is alive. Did you catch that part? In Hebrews it says it is living and active. It is the only book, the only words that can take root in your heart and transform you from the inside out. They're the only words that matter. And so when we take it to heart, when we tuck it in to our heart and know it, it becomes a part of who we are, then when Satan attacks us, we don't even have to stop and think about it because we know the truth. We know what God's Word has told us, and we believe it, and we live it, and we breathe it. In Revelation chapter 19, 
it tells us describes Jesus' return. It says in Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know how words are only as powerful as the one who has said them, right? Um, The word of the Lord is powerful because it is his word. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he is coming back. He has already defeated Satan, but he is coming back someday again with his word to finish off the war. And when he comes back, it is his word that's going to bring victory. And so for us to fight back and to be able to stand firm in this day, we have to learn how to use this and use it well. The third thing that Paul tells them to do is to pray fervently. In verse 18, he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So the word is our weapon, the only weapon that Satan can see, really or here, but just as effective is prayer. So we need to be a people of the word, but we also need to be a people of prayer. Until that day when Jesus comes back, when the word returns to us, then we are to watch into prayer. We're to pray for all people. We're to pray for all things in all situations. We're to pray passionately and with fervor, not some lackadaisical kind of prayer that we kind of mutter half-heartedly, but constantly, persistently, over and over and over again with passion, expecting God to answer, expecting Him to be faithful to us. We're to pray for um, the Spirit to fill us, to be strengthened through the Spirit, for His power to dwell within us. We're to pray for God to enable us to face evil and to stand firm. We're to pray for our leaders. He, Paul specifically asked for prayer for himself. Well, We should pray for our own church leaders, pray that they are able to stand firm, that they may preach the gospel boldly, that they may be a witness to Jesus in this dark time that we live in. Pray um, that they may have the boldness to proclaim the truth in a world that insists that there is no truth. Pray with boldness yourself and with constancy like I am shocked sometimes by the things that my children ask me and like just expect me to do just because they're my kids they think you know I'll be sitting there with 
my own little caramel granola bar on my plate because I fixed it and Micah will walk up and be like, can I have that? I'm like, this is mine. I fixed this. But she has that boldness because she is my daughter. She feels comfortable for asking me for things because she knows that I love her and I'm faithful to her and I will answer her if I can. And if there are extra caramel <laughs> granola bars, I will get her her own <laughs> to eat, okay? It's the same way. We should approach God with that same boldness because as we learned earlier, we are His children. He is our Father. We shouldn't be afraid to approach Him and ask Him for help um, because He has given it to us. He wants to answer our prayers, but so many times we don't get the help that we need because we don't ask for it. Earlier today, I told some of you before, you know, before everyone else got here that the devil was really working hard today, and he was. It was appropriate, the spiritual warfare lesson. But um, also another Micah story for you. <laughs> There's a little girl who lives across, well, she doesn't live, her grandparents live across the street from us, and they pick her up, and she spends a lot of time over there, so the kids play a lot together, okay? But she always, whenever she comes over, she always comes to the front door, which is fine, and this is for our own protection. All of our doors have deadbolts on them, the kind that you have to, like, use a key to open, and so my kids can't open the doors by themselves. So Stevie comes to the front door, and she knocks on it, and Micah's talking to her through the door because there's a window there. But Micah does not ask me for help. She did not ask me to come and open the door to get the key for her. I would have gladly done it. I was waiting for her to ask. I heard them talking. No, what does she do? She yelled to Stevie through the door, you just need to go to our garage and punch in the code and hit enter, and you can come in. And I'm like, no! You don't just hand out the code to our house. Like, you just don't do that. And so if she had only asked me for help, I could have given it to her in appropriate ways. No, she went about on her own and tried to do it her own way, which was totally not okay and got her into trouble. So many times that we find ourselves in trouble because we try to do things on our own. We think we, we know what's best. We think that we can handle it. And we don't ask God for help when he is more than willing to provide it for us. All we have to do is ask. And what Paul is saying here is that we have to be a people who ask not just once, not just twice, but constantly. We don't just pray for something once. We don't just um, mention prayer requests in Bible study or in Sunday school book but we lift those up to the Lord constantly and we expect him to answer because he is faithful to his word. So we have to be a people who pray. And the last thing um, that, this is not really something that he tells him, them to do, but in his closing words in verse 24, he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. We have to be a people who love with that type of love. What is something that is incorruptible? It's something that can never go bad. You think about all these doomsday people who are getting ready and stocking up on foods that have shelf lives that last forever. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of love we need to have, the kind that has an eternal shelf life. It will never go bad. Okay, It's not going to tarnish. It's not going to fade. 
it's not going to um, rot with time. It's not going to lose its fervency as time goes on, but it's lasting and it is eternal. He says, grace be to those who love the Lord with love incorruptible. The only way that we can get that kind of love is for God to give it to us. That love that never fades comes from Him. And when we place our faith in Him, when we place our trust in Him, He gives us access to this limitless store of all of His blessings. And that love is one of them. And so if we are not experiencing victory, then it is because we have not tapped into that endless supply that God has made available to us. The reason I think that Paul goes to such great lengths in this book to tell us how big God's love is and how great His mercy is, how awe-inspiring His power is, is so that we can maybe just get a tiny little glimpse of what is available to us. God has all of these things in abundance, and He wants to pour them out on us. And when He does, when He so fills us with His love, then it spills out from us and splashes onto the world around us. He does it so that His name may be praised. And when we love Jesus with that kind of love, the world can't help but notice and so that is God's big plan to change the world is to fill believers with mercy and love and goodness and truth so that we can then go and share it with the rest of the world and because his supply of it is limitless as it as we pour it out onto others he continues to fill us back up with it it's the well that never runs dry we can never run out of it. And so that's the goal. That's what we are searching. That's what we are aiming for. That's what um, we are made to do, is to be vessels of this limitless love for the world. Um, may we be that kind of people. May we be good representatives of him. <laughs> may we hold up the family name since we have been adopted as his children. All of these things, these final words that he gives to them were meant to encourage them to then go and do and be, be the people that God has called us to be. So as we face our own brand of evil in this day and time, because you don't have to look very hard. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is an awfully dark place these days. You don't have to look very far to see the wreckage of sin, to um, pump right up next to a cold and hard and dead heart, to know that Satan is still at work. But Paul says here that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Those people, those people, those bad people out there, they are not our enemy. They are people who need grace and who need love and who need truth. Behind them is an enemy who is winning the battle for their souls. And so what we need to start doing is recognizing that 
God has outfitted us not just for our own protection, but so that we may rescue others, so that we may share, share those blessings with them so that they're not fighting a losing battle. Because the only reason we have victory is through Jesus. Now, one last thing. All of these instructions that he has given us are for us individually. I mean, we, we do have to arm ourselves with truth and with righteousness. We have to study the word. We have to learn how to use it. Um, but it would not be very wise of us to go into battle alone. We are so much more effective as a unit and God has not called us Christians to a solitary life, but to a life in community um, where we can be strong when our sisters are weak, when we can put our arm around them and help them limp to safety when something has gotten through their defenses. And so let this be a reminder to us um, that, that we need to help each other fight the battles but that also means that you have to make yourself vulnerable to other people you have to trust your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you along to I mean it's hard to admit when you're weak when you are um, really struggling with something when Satan is really beating on you because I think sometimes in the church we like to pretend that we've got it all together Oh, we don't struggle with that. Oh, no, I'm a Christian. I'm good. Come on, y'all. That's one of the greatest lies that we Christians have believed, that nobody else struggles with the same thing we do. But the truth is that we all struggle one way or another. And our strength comes from the Lord, but it also comes from the body of Christ. He has given us each other for a reason. And we have to be strong enough to hold each other up and to help each other. Just like, I mean, it would be crazy for one person to go into battle with a whole entire legion in front of them. No, the way that we win this war is together. And this whole book has been about unity, about the church being the church, about the transformation of a community. And it still speaks truth to us today. We have to be the kind of people um, who, we're not lone rangers. We're not. We are a unit that works together. Um, have you ever seen, I think in the movie 300, I can't remember, one of those like Roman battle, gladiator something. Okay, so they're out, on the, <laughs> they're out on the battlefield and like the unit is marching together and they've all got their gigantic shields, right? And so um, the commander or somebody issues a command when people start shooting arrows at them and spears are flying and they all get like huddled close together and they form... Like the ones in front put their shields in front of them, the ones in the middle put their shields on top of them, and the ones on the sides put their shields to the sides so that they're like this impenetrable wall of shields. Well, if they were alone, they would have been left vulnerable. But together, they could fend off the attack. The official name for that formation is the testudo formation, which is Latin, I think, for tortoise. It's like a turtle shell. Is it 300? See, does I say 400? Okay, well, so I didn't just make it up. It's a real thing. <laughs> I did find a picture of it online, like somebody made one of Lego men, 
which was really funny looking, but anyway. So just bear that image in mind that we are to shield and protect one another and that this battle is not something that we face alone, but it's something that we're called to do together. The Lord has given us everything that we need for victory. Um, we just only have to have the faith to believe it and to trust. So I'll pray for us and then we can wrap it up. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for um, giving us all that we need, Lord, for the way that you have so generously poured out your love and your mercy and your grace on us. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your power, that you would knit us together and help us to fight the forces of evil together, Lord, that we would be bearers of truth and bringers of justice, Lord, that you would help us to learn your word that you would plant it in our hearts so that we may wield it as the weapon that you have crafted it to be. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would so fill us with your spirit and with your light and with your love, that it would pour out from us and change the world around us, Lord, that you would help us to be a light in this dark place. Father, we are yours. Help us to be your people. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>